listen to this. I'm going to start with this, uh, this quote. We believe God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save all humanity from death and their individual sins. Jesus Christ is central to the lives of church members. They seek to follow his example by being baptized, Matthew chapter 3, praying in his holy name, Matthew chapter 6, partaking the sacrament, Luke 22, and doing good to others, Acts chapter 10, and bearing witness of him through both word and deed, James chapter 2. The only way to salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. How does that sound? Don't answer. Moving on. Listen to this one. We believe in Jesus who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. We have faith that Jesus came to earth from heaven and gave his perfect human life as a ransom sacrifice. Matthew chapter 20. His death and resurrection make it possible for those exercising faith in him gain everlasting life. John 3, 16. We also believe that Jesus is now ruling as king of God's heavenly kingdom, which soon uh, will soon bring peace to the entire earth. Revelation chapter 11. How does that sound? It sounds good, right? You probably right now feel like I'm leading you on, right? <laughs> and you're exactly right. The first quote is from the website, a direct quote from the website, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormons. The second quote is from a website ran by the Watchtower Society, a.k.a. the Jehovah Witnesses. Both these quotes sound so good. They quote scripture. It sounds fantastic. They use words that we use. But they do not, as we will learn, do not believe in the same Jesus at all. The Mormons believe Jesus is a spiritual brother of Lucifer and is a created being. It was not, Jesus was not an eternity past, according to the Mormons. The Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is a very high being, the first created being, but not God. I'm sure, and I've heard stories uh, of people here where... Um, Two, either of these groups will come by your house. The Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, who've experienced that? Okay. Um, last month, I was able to, to have a, a friendly debate, I'll use that word, <laughs> with the kind of the head of the Kingdom of Hall of Jehovah Witnesses in Bemidji. Rick's his name. I can't remember his last name. We had a, a friendly conversation, but it seemed like I was straining to repeat myself saying, Rick, we do not believe in the same Jesus whatsoever. And we were very kind to each other, but from the very beginning, I said, we do not, do you agree that we do not believe, we do not worship, we do not follow the same God? Uh, he, um, I, I'm sure he agrees, but the way he was talking, he was continually trying to make it seem like we pretty much believe in the same Jesus. Nope, not even close. What we believe about Jesus matters. And I'm not here to bash the Mormons of Jehovah's That's not what I'm doing. My purpose in this is showing that what we believe in Jesus matters. If you get the personal work of Jesus wrong, you get Christianity wrong. You get truth wrong, and you get salvation wrong if we do not get Jesus right. And we will see, we will see three truths in our passage this morning. And if you if looking at our, our passage here, it's the only reliable account of about Jesus' childhood, right? He's 12 years old. Uh, so you have kids there about that age. He's 12 years old. The, literally, our Savior is 12 years old in this passage. Um, I say reliable because the Gospel of Thomas, which is uh, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, has these accounts, um, but it's not reliable one bit. Um, we can talk about this some other time. 
That's why I said the only reliable account. But look at this. And as we jump into this, um, this is the end of Luke chapter 2, but it's also the end of Luke's introduction of Jesus. And we see that it ends the same way it starts, in the temple. It started with Zechariah, with the angel in the temple. It ends with Jesus, the boy, in the temple. And the temple is very big. We see a theme here. Our last passage two weeks ago was about Jesus with his parents coming to the temple. It started, this introduction started with an angel proclaiming about Jesus to come. And now it's ending with Jesus introducing himself. I'm excited. This is really, really good. And we'll see three things. Three important things. Because like we said, if you do not understand the truth of the person of Christ, we can easily succumb to false teaching. Easily. Especially when it's wrapped up in really good sounding words that we use. And so these three things we'll see. One, the deity of Christ. Two, the humanity of Christ. And three, the perfect obedience of Christ. We'll see those three things. And this is how we're going to do it this morning. The first half, we're just going to go through the account and look at what happened. And then the second half, we're going to look at those three points. Jesus' deity, humanity, perfect obedience. And the implications of those for our lives today. Sound good? Good. All right, let's do this. So here we go. The accounts of the boy Jesus. 41. Now his parents, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Feast of Passover. That, that might ring some bells for us. Um, remember, it's celebrating the deliverance out of Egypt, right? Moses, when they, um, the, uh, the angel of death came by, killed the firstborn in Egypt. If the, the Israelites uh, killed the lamb and put the blood on the, like the front doorstep, or not the step, the, I can't think of it. Uh, Seth, help me out. What's the name? There we go. That's, let's use that. Then the, the angel passed over, hence passed over. And so they're celebrating that here. Usually uh, it falls in March, and, March or April. Um, and right after pass, the Feast of Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that goes for seven days. Most, most people stay for two days. But it seems the text indicating that Mary and Joseph Jesus stayed the whole time, which is a long time. But they're there. And Jerusalem is packed. We talked about at Jesus' crucifixion that it was at Passover, and Jerusalem just explodes. The population explodes because everyone comes back to Jerusalem to, to, to celebrate this. And so that's the scene. Jesus' parents go to Passover with Jesus. They're obedient parents. Interesting thing. Uh, so they live in Nazareth, which is north, and they're going to Jerusalem south. Most likely, since they're Jews... They'll, they'll go around Samaria. If you remember when we looked at uh, John 4, the woman with the well, Jews do not like Samaritans whatsoever, and they'll even take the long way around. So if they did that, which most likely they did, it's like a three to four day journey, 80 miles. And on this trip, this is important, there's some dangerous roads, that there's thieves and robbers. There's dangerous roads. So these travelers will go into like a little caravan. They'll go together, a big group, just to cut for safety reasons. And it takes about three to four days, 20 miles a day. All right? We read here, Luke says, Jesus is 12 years old. I still can't get past that. He's 12 years old. Our Lord and Savior is 12 years old. So that puts us about 6 to 8 AD. And they went up to Jerusalem, which is according to custom. Okay? All right. Now, 43. I always laugh at this. And when the feast was ended, as they returned, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. 
But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, 20 miles on foot, most likely. But, they, but when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, before we throw accusations like, how could you, Joseph and Mary, just leave your son? How could you not know, right? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were at the Trams house for family night. Uh, I doubt, I could be wrong, tell me if I'm wrong, that you did not watch every single move of your 12-year-old kid, right? You just supposed that they were in the group. They were watching the bags turning. They were playing basketball. They were going for thirds, fourths, and fifths of food, right? You just suppose they're in the group. And mind you, especially if this kid has a sinless track record, literally has a sinless track record, you probably don't really, it's not that big of a deal. In the same way here, they just suppose they're in the group. Their families are in this caravan. Yep, Jesus is with us. And then most likely when it came to the end of the first night, when they just gathered together to sleep, where's Jesus? He's not with us. But look at this. So they returned to Jerusalem after one day's journey. They backtracked one whole day. Remember, Joseph is a carpenter. No doubt he's got customers. And now he's going to be behind at least two days. Come on, Jesus. Like, we've got home projects to do. What's going on here? And so they go back searching for him. 46, after three days. Is any parents enjoying this so far? Like, yeah, this is, I can relate with, this is the most passage I can relate with the most is right here, right? 46, after three days, three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Three days. I'm certain, uh, if you're a parent, you probably have stories of being in the grocery store. You're going around doing your business. You look behind and make sure the ducklings are behind you, and one's missing. And then you get this anxiety, almost panic. You're kind of, okay, okay, looking around, backtracking, and then you see him in the entertainment section watching the TV, right? You find him. Now imagine that panic and terror for three whole days. (laughs) They're looking for this guy. They didn't have a PA system. Hey, Jesus, come down by the donkeys or whatever. They didn't have that. And so they're looking for Jesus for three days. And they find him in the temple, sitting. In the temple, remember this. This is a theme. The temple is a theme here. They find him among the teachers, listening to them in questions. In the ancient world, the teachers would sit with their students. And these teachers, they're comparable to seminary professors. Like literally their whole lives is about knowing God's word and teaching it. They've got massive amounts of Old Testament memorized, which puts us all to shame, especially me. Massive amounts. I mean, books of the Old Testament memorized. And the custom in Judaism is that the student would engage with the teacher in a question and answer discussion. Exactly what we're reading here. And you have this boy, this 12-year-old Jesus, engage with these teachers in the temple. This question and answer. And they are amazed at his insight. The questions he's asking, the answers he's giving, they're amazed. This 12-year-old boy doing this. All heard were amazed. This will not be the last time that people will be amazed at his teaching. All right, moving on. It's exciting. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, okay, three days, so they saw him. What do you expect the parents to do, right? 
They saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. No surprise there. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So the parents were amazed. Their 12-year-old son is with the teachers. And they're, they're amazed. They're astonished at what's going on here. And then Mary says, Why have you treated us so? It's interesting. Mary and Joseph, they felt wrong, but they weren't. They felt offended, but no offense was done on Jesus' part. And so there's this interesting dynamic. You can almost hear an echo. If you remember when Simeon prophesied, he referred to Mary, a sword will go through your soul, right? Concerning Jesus. And it seems to be like a, a first fulfillment almost. Like it's already starting. It is already starting. And Jesus says, like, do you not know I must be among my father's house. This seems kind of commonplace to us, right? The temple is God's house and, and God is Jesus' father. But this is the first time it's ever been said. It's right here. The first time it's ever been said is right here. Now imagine, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they, 12 years ago, there was the angel, there were some incredible things going on, the shepherd said some crazy things about their son, Right? And they've probably been thinking about that. As it says, Mary ponders these things. Twelve years later, their 12-year-old son is teaching teachers, and he literally calls the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord, my Father. This 12-year-old boy calls the Lord, my Father. On a foundational level, he obviously is saying that God exists. But on a far more deeper level, Jesus is teaching that he is God. If God is his father, then he is his son. In our uh, culture, our English, the son really means like that's where you've been uh, origin. Your, your origin is from your, your father, right? At this time, in Jewish culture, uh, sonship meant a lot more than that. It had more to do with um, being identical with or, or uh, being one with or equal with. Like, for example, in the eyes of the Jewish people, you, a boy only became a son in the fullest sense once he turned 13, because then he's fully responsible for himself and fully responsible for God in, in accordance with the law. So the sonship means to be equal with in the, in the Jewish mind. We see this, or one with. We see this throughout the New Testament. Barnabas, his name really means son of encouragement. Not that he's the son of some kind of encouragement, but he's equal with, or he's, his identity is with encouragement. Judas is called the son of destruction. Not that he's the son of it, but that he's equal with, or that's what he's identified with. Ephesians 2, Paul calls unbelievers as sons of disobedience. That they're equal with, or that's their identity. And so that's sonship. And so what we see here is that sonship doesn't refer to origin, but nature. So Jesus is the son of God, Meaning he is equal to God as Father. The deity of Christ. We'll talk about that. But we see that clearly being proclaimed here. Um, let, me, let me do kind of a side. I've been doing a lot of those lately. But let me do a kind of a side here. Um, see this connection. Don't lose the, the, the theme of the temple. This connection between knowing God and the temple. And the temple obviously has been destroyed. And, that, and that's gone, done, done with. But it's been replaced by the church, the gathering, not a building, but the church or the, the gathering or the assembly of believers. 
knowing God and growing to him is always tied to this church gathering. Um, Listen to this quote by Dr. John Leith. He says this, We also come to know God by participating in the fellowship of those who have formed the reality of God and who worship his name. It is doubtful if any faith conviction can be maintained apart from a supporting community. And this is especially true in the instance of faith in God. Christian life, as well as theology, is based on the conviction that we come to know God by the power of the Holy Spirit, especially as the Holy Spirit speaks through the words of Scripture in the fellowship of the church. Persons come to know God in a great variety of ways. God's Spirit is free. It is possible that the Spirit of God will deeply move one who is playing golf on Sunday morning. But it's more likely that the Spirit of God will deeply move our hearts and renew our minds in the conviction that God is, and more than that, God knows and God loves us through participation in the worshiping, believing community of Christian people. Knowing God occurs in the faith community. Um, D.L. Moody, have you heard of D.L. Moody? A well-known guy, I think he was in the 1800s. There's an account of him that he goes to um, a member of a church in Chicago. He visits him at home. This man, he's been saying, or he's been saying uh, over and over, hey, I can be just as good of a Christian outside of church. D.L. Moody's listening to this. He's not really saying anything. He goes over to the fireplace, which is, it's winter out there. He goes over to it. He picks up one of the coals, and he puts it on the ground. says nothing. So him and the man just stare as the coal slowly dies out. Then the man responds, I see, and he starts going to church. The point of that, and the point that D.L. Moody was saying there, is that you remove the coal from the bunch, it will die out. You remove the coal from the bunch, it will die out. Without the fellowship, without the gathering, the assembly, we will die out. The New Testament church, in the the New Testament, the early church, is about the assembly, the gathering. And so we see that. In the Great Commission, we're called to teach people um, to obey all things that Jesus has commanded. And that happens within the gathering, the worshiping of the community. And so we see it tied here from the very beginning. Okay, now let's let's finish up this account. And so that's all good. Uh, emotions ran high. We see that here with Mary. What's going on here? And then verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So we see here that they, even the parents, they did not understand what is going on. We see almost a picture of possibly Theophilus. Remember, this is who Luke is writing this to. And Luke is writing to assure Theophilus or to reassure him of all he's been taught. And so this might be a picture of that in Mary where I'm not really sure what's going on. And that might be a picture of some of us who are listening. It might be, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what is going on. Who is this Jesus? But each person has to wrestle. Who is this Jesus? Is he really the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, or is he not? As we saw two weeks ago, there's no in-between. It's one or the other. And look at this. So he went down to Nazareth. And what does he do? He was submissive to them. I know as parents, you can be very jealous at this point. He's a perfect kid. Let me say it again. He's a perfect kid. Not once back-talking. Not once disobeying. Not once, literally. But he was submissive to them. But here's the point. Don't lose the significance. He was fully human. 
fully human. And we see that where he says, verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in faith with God and man. He literally had to grow, just like us, our kids. He literally had to grow. His brain had to develop to understand language, a logic, abstract thought, literally. He was fully human. He experienced the temptations we experience. He experiences the pain that drives us to anger and to lash out. He, he experiences the temptation of lust. Do you remember John uh, chapter 8? The I think it's 8. Um, the woman caught in adultery was thrown before Jesus, right? Most likely she's naked. She was caught in the act. Jesus experienced all of that. He experiences all of this. He was fully human. He experienced the temptation of power control when Satan offers it. To, to Jesus when he was in the desert. He experiences all of it, but never sinned. Not once. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was completely obedient. We'll come back to that. We see Mary, she treasures up all these things in her heart. And we saw that already, that she ponders these things. What is going on? This is my son. I literally gave birth to. What is going on? She treasures these things. So we have Jesus, a 12-year-old. Next time we see him, uh, in two weeks, God willing, uh, he will be about 30 years old. So this 12-year-old Jesus. Fun stuff. Kind of crazy. Very relatable. But here, okay, now let's tie it back. Here's the part two. The three points. Jesus' deity, Jesus' humanity, and his perfect obedience. Why does this matter? Why is this important? And what are the implications for my life and your life? Here we go. Jesus' deity. What you believe about Jesus matters big time. Jesus is fully God. Not some superhuman, not some high elevated being. He is fully God. He is absolutely equal to God the Father in his person and in his work. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. It's very clear. You're not a Christian if you do not believe that Jesus is God. Um, some people, uh, an objection you might get that's all over the place is, oh, Jesus, he never really claimed to be God. That's some some old uh, teaching of Paul that he attributed to Jesus, but he never really proclaimed that or claimed that. Completely false. Um, as I said uh, last week, I've been going with a guy through John, and John multiple times. Uh, Jesus' enemies at the time, the Jewish leaders, they wanted to stone him because he was clearly claiming that he was God. And that's why he wanted to stone him. Jesus would make the claim, and then the very next verse is that, and they grabbed stones to kill him, but Jesus got away. Clearly, he claimed to be God, very clearly. Uh, John 3.16, someone, someone throw it out there. Quote it. There we go. Thank you. I thought we're going to have to work on that. But my point is this. Um, when I was having a conversation with uh, Rick, the Jehovah Witness, and I'm sure, I'm sure you probably had these conversations too. Uh, one thing they'll point out is, hey, uh, John 3.16, the only begotten son, he was created. He was brought forth. This, John also says this in John chapter 1. Uh, does that mean that he was created? No, this is, that's a, a misunderstanding in the original language. The begotten does not mean origin. That's not what it refers to, but it refers to kind, one of a kind. He's the one of a kind son. Um, for example, and this is important, I'm trying to lay out the deity of Christ and some very common objections. Hebrews 11:17. 17, 
Another word for his firstborn. Isaac is referred to as Abraham's firstborn. Obviously, that's not the case. Ishmael is the firstborn, but it's because that word means one of a kind. It was Isaac who was the son of the covenant. It did not go through Ishmael, it went through Isaac. In the same way, uh, in um, Colossians chapter 1, where Paul talks about Jesus, he says he's the firstborn of creation, right? That's another favorite verse. What does that say right there, that he was created? Not at all. That's the word does not mean being born. It refers to his preeminence, that he's, he's above. He's the, he's the preeminent one. Exodus. Israel is referred to as the firstborn of God. He, Israel was not the first nation, but it was preeminent. It was the chosen vessel of God. So we see here that it works out. There's no objection to Jesus' deity. It was clear that it's claimed by Jesus. It is claimed by all the New Testament writers. Why did Jesus have to be God? Since we're talking about his deity, why did he have to be God? One, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says this. It's a quick, concise answer. He had to be God so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. He had to be God because he had to endure God's wrath. He had to be able to endure death. He had to be raised again. He had to. Otherwise, we have absolutely no hope. So Jesus is fully God. What are the implications? Number one, we can be saved. We are not hopeless. We are not completely lost because Jesus was God. He was able to be our substitute. He was able to be our Savior. Number two, God cares about you. He sent Jesus, his Son, fully God, to you. Emmanuel, God with us. God cares about you. Three, another implication of Jesus' deity. Jesus is Lord. If he's God, he is Lord. You're not your own. You have a master and you have a Lord. And praise God, he's a very good, very gracious master and Lord. And number four, you do not need to be in control. Jesus is God means you don't have to be in control because he is. You can rest and trust because God is in control. Jesus' deity. Number two, Jesus' humanity. Jesus is fully human. He is fully human. Everything about you that makes you human, Jesus is. Except, the only exception, is that he did not possess man's sinful or fallen nature. He did not possess that. Um, That might seem more of a stretch nowadays. Like, who denies that Jesus was human, right? That seems like that's not that big of a deal. It was massive in the New Testament. In fact, 1 John was basically written against this. That Jesus was human. Those were saying, "Oh, he just, uh, he just, um, he was just a, 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 like a ghost, a spirit. He wasn't really human. That's one thing." Uh, but Jesus was fully human. John says in First John four two that if you don't believe that Jesus is fully human, you are not a Christian. He says it very clearly. If you don't believe Jesus is fully human, you are not a Christian. Uh, same question: Why must Jesus have been human? Why? The answer, I'm quoting from the the Heidelberg Catechism again. He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sin should pay for sin. And this is clearly what the Hebrew writer says in chapter 2, which says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that... 
he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, meaning to satisfy, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He is fully human. Another big thing is he's because he's fully human, he can sympathize. He can sympathize with us. A lot of times, uh, we hear, we read about Jesus in the desert being tempted. We read about his brutal torture and his execution, which we just recently went through um, Easter, which, man, I guess it wasn't really that recent anymore. <laughs> but it seems like that. But when we read about the religious leaders constantly attacking him and testing him, it can be very easy to overlook it. It can be very easy to just be like, ah, oh, like, I mean, he's God. It could have been that bad. The temptation could have been that bad. The the torture and stuff. He's God. I mean, it could it could be just a walk in the park. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus is fully human. He experienced he experiences the same temptation. I should say he experienced the same temptation that we do, but to a far greater degree because. He never gives in. And there's this constant temptation growing and building in the pole to sin. The same pain that you experience, Jesus has experienced. Do not overlook the humanity of Christ. Liberal theologians tend to deny Jesus' deity. They deny that Jesus was God. Conservative theologians have a tendency to downplay or overlook Jesus' humanity. But don't overlook either. He was God, but he was also fully human. And he experiences the same thing that we did. The implications, number one, salvation. We can be saved. He's a, a, a substitute that can be in place of us because he was human. We can be saved. Number two, as we just said, he can sympathize. He is not that distant person who sees you struggling with whatever you're struggling with. That's over here. And it's just like, like, you're so dramatic, right? Have you ever gotten that? You're so dramatic. What, what, what heart should we talk about? Like, I did. I went through this three years ago. It's far worse than you. That's not all Jesus does. He sympathizes. He understands what we're going through. He understands the temptation, the hardship. He can sympathize. And because of that, we can go to God's throne for grace and mercy, as the Hebrew writer says. Uh, but let us then, after he talks about that Jesus can sympathize with us, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, the literal throne of God, that we may receive mercy and find grace up in time of need. We don't come just kind of crawling. He says we can go with confidence because of Christ. Right? Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. Now, let me ask the question before we get to his perfect obedience. How is that possible? How is that possible? And if you think I can do a very good job explaining that here in the next four hours, that's funny, we're not going four hours. Obviously, that's not possible. But I asked that question, and we should ask that question. Why? Because we're not playing make-believe. We're not watching some fantasy movie. If we are staking literally our eternal lives on this, and we're staking the direction of our, our family and our children on this, we better ask that question. How is that possible that Jesus is fully God and fully human? That does not seem very easy to comprehend. Good question. I'm going to throw a word out there. You can do with it what you will. This term has come to be called the hypostatic union. 
Max will explain it. If you want to understand that more, you can ask Max later. <laughs> no, basically meaning that Jesus is one person, two natures, fully God, fully human, not mixed together. They're separate, but they're together, not mixed. Two natures, one person. A very important person that we all should know in church history is a guy named by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius, he lived in about the early 300s, so a while ago, 1,700 years ago. He worked extensively on Jesus' deity and humanity and fought for it. Um, Arius, I'm not sure if you heard that name, he denied Jesus' deity. He literally is an ancestor in that sense, that teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses of Mormons. He taught that 1,700 years ago. Athanasius, he opposed this big time to some serious consequences. He was banished five times from his hometown. Five times. Banished? Oh, you can come back. Oh, you're still teaching that? You're out of here. Oh, you can come back now. Five times. This is what he taught, or this is how he explained how God, Jesus could be fully God and fully human. I'm hoping this will edify you as it did to me, trying to understand this. This is what he says. He says, For this is the true faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, begotten before all worlds from the, be- from the being of the Father, and he is man, born in the world from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man with a rational soul and a human body. Equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not divided, but is one Christ. He is united because God has taken humanity into himself. He does not transform deity into humanity. He is completely one in the unity of his person without confusing his natures. For as the rational soul and body are one person, so the one Christ is God and man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. You deny one, you're not a Christian, and you... You get rid of Christianity, and you get rid of truth, and you get rid of salvation. Jesus is fully God and fully human. Here's the third and last point. It may be a very exciting point. is Jesus' perfect obedience. Jesus never sinned, not once. And this is absolutely amazing news for you and me. He's fully God, meaning he can take God's wrath to the very last trip. He's fully human, meaning he can be our substitute. He's the same of us, therefore he can step in for you and for me. And number three, he's perfectly obedient, meaning he did it for us. Jesus, he did enough. Adam, he failed. He stood by while Eve ate the fruit. And then he ate it too. Abraham, he failed. He didn't trust God. He went to try to get a son through a different woman. King David, the man of God's heart, he failed. He killed the man to be with his wife. Israel failed all of the time. Failed continually to trust God and to be what they were supposed to be, a light to the world, sharing the good news of God. But this boy, Jesus, we see him in the wilderness, starving for food, probably very lonely. Yet, he emerges victorious. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally sweating blood, locked in anxiety, yet he emerges victorious. Perfectly obedient. He never sinned. This is why he can be called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
He's the one who gets our unrighteousness and sin, gets executed for it, and we get his righteousness and get all the blessings that come with perfection. Jesus prayed enough. Jesus evangelized enough. Jesus memorized scripture enough. Jesus read scripture enough. Jesus loved enough. He did all these things enough. And we get that through faith. It's called uh, double imputation. Our unrighteousness is imputed on Christ and he is executed for it. His righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed on us through faith. And we are just blessed because of it. We get all the blessings for it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What God requires, Christ provides. What God requires, Christ provides. Okay. What are the implications of this? Number one, salvation. We see salvation through all these. Salvation. We can be saved. We can be righteous because Christ is righteous. Through faith in him, we can become righteous. Number two, as I I said, Jesus has done enough. Jesus has done enough. If you are trusting him in him right now, you are enough and you have done enough because Jesus is enough and he has done enough and he has given that to you through faith in him. As a Christian, you don't have to be, don't have any, you never, if you're a Christian, ever, need to feel guilt or condemnation ever again. Romans 8, 1, because in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for all those who are in Christ. Jesus has literally taken it all up. So, wrapping this up, what you believe about Jesus matters significantly. You get Jesus wrong, you get Christianity wrong, you get truth wrong, you get salvation wrong, you get your life wrong, and there's a good chance you're misleading and getting the children, your children and your spouse's life wrong as well. What you believe about Jesus matters. All over in the New Testament, from the mouth of Paul, Peter, James, John, uh, Jesus himself, over and over says there are false teachers and they're coming. There are false teachers present, there's some among you, over and over, all over. And Paul says in Romans that they deceive with smooth talk. Language sounds just like our language. The, like, the Mormons, as we read, they talk about Jesus, salvation through faith in Jesus. It sounds so good, but we do not believe in the same Jesus. The Jesus we worship is fully God, fully human, and he was perfectly obedient. If you're here today, and you're not trusting in Christ alone to resolve your account with God, there's something you need to know. is that God demands perfect obedience. Not once disobeying. Not once. Not once just not doing what you're supposed to do. And you will be condemned. But in Christ, you can be declared righteous and perfectly obedient now because of Christ. Last thing I want to say is that, Christian, you can rest because Jesus is God, because he's fully human, because he perfectly obeyed, and through faith in him, you receive the perfect obedience, and God sees that, and he declares you as righteous, perfectly obedient for the rest of eternity. You can rest. You can rest. Please pray with me. Father, Lord, 
What good news. Jesus. I, Lord, I know that I get overwhelmed, as I'm sure everyone else here does. Overwhelmed by what it seems like. I need to do this. I, I, I'm not praying enough. I'm not doing this enough. I'm not sharing the gospel to my friends at work enough. And Lord, those are, are good things. They're great things. But when we use that and we see that as if our relationship with you is now hurt because of that, Lord, may you just grab, may we just grasp this truth. Jesus has done it for us. He has perfectly obeyed. And that when you look at us, when you relate with us, you relate with someone who has perfectly obeyed, not because we did, but because Christ did. Lord, as we go out this morning, as we go out this week, as we go to our jobs, we go to uh, recreation or whatever we do this week, uh, God, may we have this restful spirit that, you know what? As Paul says, we'll boast in our righteousness, not because it's ours, but because it's Christ. We can boast, yep, I'm right with God because Jesus Christ. Not anything I've done because of Jesus, but because of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Help us to fight for this. Help us not to be deceived. Help us to just glory in Jesus, the Christ, the Savior, the Lord. Fully God, fully human, perfectly obedient. Lord, we ask this all in his name. Amen.